Hello and welcome back to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. You're listening to the second episode of our mini-series, Medicine Made for You, a deep dive into the future of healthcare and how it could soon get a lot more personal. In our first episode, we looked at precision medicine, the targeting of treatment for certain diseases based on our DNA. In this episode, we'll be looking at the food we eat and how dietary advice may get much more personalised in the future. With me in the studio today, I've got our producer, Gemma Ware. Hello, Annabelle. Hello. So, Gemma, you've brought with you some weighing scales, a banana and some digestive biscuits. Yes, so I needed some snacks to help demonstrate a new app that I've got on my phone. Um, So, Annabelle, if you open those digestive biscuits, I'm going to quickly peel this banana. Um, So what we're we're trying to do is this new app I've got on my phone, which is called the Zoe app. We are going to scan these foods in and then I'm going to get a percentage, which we'll explain a bit later. So uh, let me open up this app. Um, It says search using a barcode. So do you want to use that barcode scanner and just scan the back of the digestive biscuit packet? Okay. It says McVitie's Digestive Dark Chocolate. Okay, so click on that, um, and then we're going to do Create Meal. Okay. Um, so it's asking us how many biscuits, so perhaps I'll just eat one this morning. Two? Mm, two, let's say two. Okay, so save quantity. Um, so it's saying 18% once in a while. So I'm going to do the same with my banana. Um, it's a very healthy breakfast. Yeah, banana and a digestive. Uh, so let's click in here. So I'm going to go banana... Fruits uh, peeled, so I'm going to put it on this weighing scale in front of me. Oh, I've just broken it in half. What have we got here? We've got 87 grams of banana, so I'm going to click through. So I've got a banana peeled, and I'm going to put in 87 grams. So it's saying 54% good for me, enjoy regularly. Hmm. So we've got 18% for the digestive and 54% for the banana peeled. Okay, so digestive, not so good, banana, very good. What is this telling us? So this app is giving me specific information based on my body, based on my gut, based on the way I respond personally to different fats and sugars that I'm eating every day. So if I had the app, I wouldn't get the same numbers necessarily. Yeah, you would get different set of of results. I might say that you could eat bananas a bit more regularly than me, or you could eat three digestives and have the same percentage. Okay. Why does this app know so much about you? How is it? specific to you? Well, so that's quite a long story. So I'm a twin. I think that's important to understand at this point. I'm an identical twin. My sister is actually called Zoe, which is the same as the app, coincidentally. And because uh, Zoe and I share 100% of our DNA, we're pretty useful to scientists who are trying to answer some of these big questions about nature versus nurture and about how much of our health and what happens to us in our lives is dictated by our genes and how much by our environment. So I'm assuming you've taken part in some experiments. That's right. So Zoe and I are part of this large twins database based at King's College London, which is called Twins UK. Every few years, we go through a series of tests, which are like an MOT of your body to make sure there's nothing going wrong. But back in 2018, we were invited to take part in a much bigger study called PREDICT, also run by King's College London, which was aiming to understand more about the factors that influence the way we digest our food. Uh So that's what this Zoe app is all about. It is. 
But in order for me to get to this point where it tells me that a digestive is not very good for me to eat every morning, I had to eat a load of muffins. Muffins? Yeah. So the scientists running the PREDICT study needed to collect lots of data about us to find out what certain foods did to our bodies. And they used muffins to do this, as my sister and I soon discovered when we went to St Thomas's Hospital in central London for a day of tests. morning is we're going yep. to do a few things. First of all, we'll do blood pressure. <laughs> they took a lot of blood pressure readings. You just have your arm. My friendly nurse Alice got me to spit into a cup to collect what seemed like an impossible amount of saliva. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Try thinking of your favourite food or that drinky really like. <laughs> Before arriving at the hospital, we'd already had to do a couple of other samples. And when we got there, they put an activity monitor on my wrist and eventually a glucose monitor that took regular readings of the glucose level or GI level in my blood. Gemma is our activity motion monitor. Okay. What we want to do is for you to wear this for the next two weeks. It's going to become your best friend. Yep. Yeah. We want you to wear it 24-7 because we want to look at your activity and your movement as well as in your sleep. We want to see the movement in your sleep because okay. we want to see if eating particular foods, you move more in your sleep or you're not even that. Oh, and there were lots of blood tests. Some I had to learn how to do myself. What we're going to do now is do your finger spot. Mm -hmm. Alice was teaching me how to make a small cut in my finger using what's called a lancet. The cut was deep enough to get out three globules of blood onto a piece of card. Zoe and I were going to have to do these for the next few days a couple of times every morning. And then we're just going to put it to the side here and it's just to push down and commit kind of thing yeah <laughs> I like to do the countdown one two three commit okay so that's all it kind of is take it away and then what you want to do is milk it uh, so just turn this hand for me and, you want and then we came to the muffins so many muffins in order for the predict study team to understand how Zoe and I react to certain foods they'd created recipes for specific types of muffins some high in fiber some high in carbs others high in fat. We had to eat them in the space of 10 minutes with a stopwatch, which we found weird. You don't normally time when you eat lunch, do you? No, it feels quite pressured. Why do you have to eat it in 10 minutes? Because we're looking at your body's response generally has a response within 10 minutes. If it's sugar, your body will start to respond within a few minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and difficult. Can. Some people... So, some people Bail. take scales with them. Can we carry on? Or what? Yeah, so I'll give you an extra three minutes. And it's really we'll... hard. <laughs> we were also taught how to correctly weigh food in the way they needed for the study. And we would have to do that for every meal, every snack, every cup of tea, which in my case was a lot, for the next fortnight. It wasn't just sets of twins taking part in the study because they needed a thousand people and I just don't think there were enough sets of twins, but the twins were crucial. 
Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, who led the PREDICT study, explained why. The twin element is really important because up to recently, say the last 10 years, we've been thinking that the difference between people and how they respond to food is primarily down to their genes. And this has led some people to have a rather fatalistic view of dieting and health and everything else and say, well, I blame my parents, it's just my genes, Uh, it doesn't really matter what I do, Uh, if I eat this, you know, I get fat, these people will eat whatever they like and never get fat, or it's so unfair. So it was important to test that uh, in this particular experiment. So not only are we doing the world's largest food intervention study, but we're also doing it using large numbers of twins, which allows us to totally adjust for the genetics because identical twins share identical genes in every cell in their body so any difference between them can't be due to genetics. Zoe and I each went home armed with a large bag full of muffins, some special glucose drinks and other snacks that we'd have to eat on specific days and a fancy set of weighing scales. Right, I am sitting down on day one to eat my first set of breakfast muffins they look really and smell really inedible but that might be because yesterday having been at the clinic I was quite sick having eaten my breakfast muffins and my lunch muffins so let's see what happens so I have 10 minutes to eat these they're really fatty and I think they must have more fibre in them in yesterday's ones. They smell quite eggy. If eating the muffins was hard enough, for me, the blood spot tests were even harder. So, Saturday morning, day two of the project study. Not at all hungry. Not looking forward to my muffins this morning. But before I do that, I have to do a blood spot test. Now, this would normally be fine, except that I, since I was about 10, have had a phobia of injections. First things first, wash your hands under very hot water. Done that. Now, to choose my finger. Okay, just got my writing finger left. This is going to be fun. This is the worst bit. I'm ready for the prick. It's kind of easier to just do it in one go. Ready? One, two, three. Mm, Not a huge amount of blood coming. Oh, here we go. And now I have to drop it onto a little card that I've got in front of me with four spots on it and I have to get enough blood onto these four spots. The blood spots were only for the first four mornings of the two weeks but I was relieved when that part of it was all over. Okay, and we're done. For the rest of the fortnight the muffins continued and I weighed everything that went into my body morning, noon and night. Oh and that glucose drink was not nice. It looks and feels like dissolving quite a large amount of icing sugar into water. So I've got this grainy 
cloudy liquid in front of me now, and I have five minutes to drink it. Mm. Super sweet. <coughs> On the last day of the trial, we had to take the glucose monitors off our arms and send them, along with some other bodily samples, back to the PREDICT lab. I asked Zoe how she felt at the end of two weeks. I'm really pleased that I don't have to log my food anymore. Mm. Was that the hardest bit? I think so. And mainly because I ate out a lot in the period, so I felt like it was tricky to do that when I was eating out. Do you think we approached it differently? I think you, you, were, you were way more diligent than me. Uh, I, well, we, we looked through our things the other day, didn't we? And I drank more tea than you, which surprised me. Yeah, Easily. I would have always thought I would drink more tea. Yeah. Mm. And the first four days were pretty hard, weren't Yeah, they? my fingers were really sore. I've still got little cuts. Marks, yeah. However, we're looking forward to the results. We are. Pleased to have finished. Yeah. For science. For science. For the good of science. That was all back in November 2018. Just over a year later, after receiving some initial results via email, Zoe and I went along to meet some of the people designing the Zoe app. Now is my time for the caveats. You are setting up a preliminary version. Yeah. The app is not fully functional. Please excuse any typos or any small bugs. This is Costa Francis, one of the developers behind the Zoe app. Let's go through it. So, okay. So this is basically another that is taking your results uh, with your uh, with your data and is trying to give you your results back. Some of that stuff, especially the copy here, might change um, over the next few weeks even. Uh, Costa and his colleagues showed us how to use the app, focusing in on three results from the study. Zoe and I were quite competitive. When it came to our blood sugar scores, my results were slightly better than hers. And it's blood sugar control during the study, basically. So okay, I'm so at the top of average. Your body regulates sugar better than most women aged 30 to 40. Your body regulates blood sugar in line with most women aged 30 to 40. Slightly better than okay. So what those results suggest here is that your body is relatively very good at metabolizing blood sugars, right? Um, so you should be happy with the mm. results. So far away. And for my blood fat reaction, too. The next one is the blood I'll try fat not control. to look ahead because it's quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mine's really good on that one. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm good still, though. There's blood fat control, right? Mm -hmm. You handle fats better than most women. But for the third result, on microbiome, she scored better than me. Oh, so he's better than me. I'm in the middle of good. We found significant amounts of 147 different species of microbes in your gut. I've got 122. I'm surprised by that. Because I eat more French cheese than you. <laughs> I guess there are... Maybe there's only a certain type of microbe in French cheese. Yeah. I asked Tim Spector, whose team is now analysing more than two million data points from the study, to explain what all this meant, and how it's related to the percentage I get when I scan a food or add a meal into the app and get a recommendation for how regularly I can eat it. He explained that the percentage is calculated using three key data points. The first is what happens to my blood glucose levels after I've eaten, or my sugar response. How high those peaks go determine many things in your body uh, and uh, determine how much fat is stored and how much is used and alter fatigue levels and exercise levels and appetite levels. And that's very much linked in with insulin. 
some people measure insulin as well, but in general they, they go along with each other, glucose and insulin. So that whole pathway is a very crucial one in how our body responds to anything with carbohydrates in it, which is a, a very useful source of fuel. The second thing the PREDICT team were measuring is the change in blood fats after a meal. After you eat something, generally about four to six hours afterwards, much longer than the sugar response, which is usually within an hour, you get these changes in fats. And fat is broken down in your body into tiny little pieces. And how long these little parcels of fats stay in your, in your blood system has a major impact, again, on your body about inflammation and uh, ill health. And the third measure is the diversity of the bacteria in my gut, or my microbiome. And these guys, again, vary massively between people. The composition of your gut microbes determines how you react to the same food. And we know that people who also have an unhealthy gut microbiome are those more likely to have bad metabolic responses to foods and uh, also more likely to gain weight over the long period of time and have a poorer immune system and be more susceptible to illnesses. So armed with this knowledge, Tim had a look over Zoe and my results. So we're looking at two pieces of paper, uh, me on the left and my sister Zoe on the, on the right. And so we've got quite different responses, I think, is it, would, would you say? Yes, yeah, so if you look at yours, you're hovering along the low end of the scale. So we're seeing... Uh, he pointed to some differences in the way we'd reacted to that first set of muffins we ate on day one. It looks like your sugar is hardly going up at all. Um, so I'm not really metabolising the sugar properly. Whether it's proper, whether, I mean, that, <laughs> what it means is you've probably got really good insulin control. So you know, at no point do you either go above the average level. And so it's fluctuating between a very narrow band. So it shows you've got a very tight insulin control. Because what we don't want it to do is go way up there and hang around for ages in your system, which means your insulin's working too hard and therefore eventually that's going to fail and you're more likely to get diabetes and get the fat uh, stored. So... That's a pretty good profile. Your sister is much more average. Mm-hmm. She tracks much higher than, than you are. And she has a, a much more of a dip and then more of a peak, doesn't she, towards yes. the end? So four um, hours, five hours later. Well, four, yeah, so actually... While the differences time. weren't stark, they were there. And that's what Tim and his team are looking for. This, this so this is a high-carb Yeah, so this is quite a good breakfast. comparison. So the high-carb breakfast, this is a really uh, sugary muffin. Um, and... You, you've got your curve on the left, and it peaks at about uh, 40 minutes, that mm-hmm. uh, uh, below the average level. And your sister's peaks at um, 40 uh, above the average level, and then uh, drops a bit faster. So, again, fairly subtle, all within the normal range, but there's a clear difference between you. Yeah. Time and again, they were seeing differences between identical twins like Zoe and me that they couldn't explain based on our genes. Something else was going on unique to you and your sister that weren't down to the fact you are genetic clones. You'd acquired some differences during your life, uh, metabolic things and predominantly changes in your microbiome, as well as potentially other things like circadian rhythm and slightly different metabolisms that we couldn't explain in terms of the old science. Tim's team drilled down into the results and are actually able to quantify those differences. Yes, well, I mean, I guess the, the main sort of four or five points we learned from the first bit of the study are that, firstly, uh, everyone's very different in their response to foods. 
eight, eightfold differences between people. Even identical twins like you were often different in their responses. That your response to sugar doesn't necessarily predict your response to fats. So you can be good at one and not the other. The genes didn't play a major role um, in this, but can still add something, but they're not the, the answer. Um, and that a lot of these person-specific factors are, are relevant. So we're trying to unravel these person-specific factors now. When it comes to a person's reaction to sugar, the PREDICT team have found that about 30% could be explained by genes. Um, but for fat, it was down to around 5%. So much more minor role. And for fats, for example, your, what your gut microbes were up to was much stronger than your genes. And because we can effectively manipulate your gut microbes to deal with fat better, and we can't at the moment change your genes, that is really exciting uh, in terms of preventive um, health measures. So yeah, it's interesting. So my sister had slightly more gut diversity than me. Uh, overall, not hugely, but just a slightly better score. But strangely, I had a slightly better response to fat. So, I mean, it's not kind of a one-way uh, It's not all or nothing. You know, no, yeah. I mean, the more we find out about the human body, the more complex it is. And it's definitely not all explained by genes. It's definitely not all explained by microbes. And we're finding that other things we didn't think were important do have a role. So... One thing we learned from the PREDICT study is the importance of things that we sort of disregard is how much sleep did you have the night before? Uh, how much sleep do you regularly get? How much exercise did you do you know, in the few hours before or after a meal? And how did you respond to that? Because people respond differently. Uh, what's your own personal circadian rhythm like? And there are some other factors that we can't pin down to microbes and we only pin down to the person about how they react to a certain food. So we have to accept that you know, there's still things we don't understand about the human body that uh, by studying identical twins we can sort of, in a way, start to see uh, those needles in the haystack that are obscured by all the things that uh, in a way, normal humans uh, are conf you know, confused with. And did, it, did anything surprise you? Were you expecting genes to have more of an impact than they did? Or yes. the microbiome to have more of an impact? Well, I'm a, I'm, you know, I've been doing... I've been a geneticist for 25 years, and so most of my career has been surprising people. Oh, isn't it surprising how strong the genetic influence is? And so I've been championing that instead of just randomness. So for me, it's quite a big deal to say, gosh, genes have really very little to do, not only with your gut microbiome, how it's contained, but also how you respond to foods, uh, which is surprising because we do know that Things like putting on weight and obesity and body fat distribution is quite strongly genetic, over 50%. And so it clearly shows that many other mechanisms are involved here. But that's great because that means we can modify them much more easily. You know, it's going to take probably 30, 40 years of genetic engineering before anyone's going to attempt to change anything in humans. But basically within a year or two you can come up with some microbial therapies uh, that could work for everyone, or just a food choice in itself, you know, in a matter of months. The Anhill podcast is produced by The Conversation. We are a news website that gives a voice to academic experts from around the world. The Conversation is a charity. We don't have ads, we don't have corporate backing, and we don't have a paywall. 
Our support comes largely from universities, charitable institutions, and donations from people like you. If you'd like to invest in experts and help spread their message to a global audience, please consider donating. Go to www.theconversation.com forward slash UK and click the donate button at the top of the homepage. Thank you. To find out more about these microbes in the gut, my conversation colleague Clint Witchells and I went along to a very smelly laboratory at the University of Reading. Okay, so we're about to head into Glenn's lab. We've been warned that there's a bad smell. Oh. <laughs> it, it's, what, do you, what do you think it smells like, Clint? Mm, hard to say. <laughs> How would you describe it? Um, sort of sewage that's been sticking around longer than it should. This is Glenn Gibson. He's Professor of Food Microbiology and an expert on the microbiome, the millions of bacteria living in our guts. Can you explain to us what we're seeing? Yeah, what, what you've got in this lab are a whole load of models of the gut. Actually, the in front of us was a workstation um, so set out with dozens of glass jars of different sizes connected with various rubber tubes. Some of the jars had little stirrers whirring around inside. Glenn explained that the experiments take a couple of weeks to set up and the main ingredient to get the model going human faeces. Basically you put the bugs, the, the bacteria in from the faeces so you make a, a slurry of it, um, so you, you make a kind of a solution with the faeces. It's horrible isn't it? Is this why it's brown? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what can we see that sort of things are floating around there? What, what's that? <laughs> do, you, do you really want to know? Um, well it's, it's bits of undigested food actually because all, all you've got in there is a growth medium which is a basal nutrient source for the bacteria, and then bugs, fe fecal bugs. But when we put the faeces into the system, uh, little bits of food get in there now and again. I have to tell you that the kind of bane of my research group's life is sweet corn. Why is that? Because it's pretty much resistant to anything the body can throw at it. Um, when we get samples from our volunteers, we always find completely intact pieces of sweet corn and we have no idea why when they've been <laughs> chewed in the mouth. <laughs> the model we were looking at was set up to test how our guts handle iron supplements. Other experiments in the lab test how the gut responds to the introduction of live bacteria, known as probiotics, as well as prebiotics, certain types of fibres that are known to be good for the gut. Glenn and his team have also tested how the guts of people with particular conditions, such as irritable bowel syndrome or autism, react to these pre- and probiotics. If the lab models show promising results, it can lead on to a human trial. So in order to put things in there, you literally just take the, the bung off the top and add, add some of that nutrient base every couple of hours? You can do it now hours. if you want. Yeah. See that glass pop, that glass stopper there? Do you want to do it, Clint? Uh, OK. Yeah, just pull that towards you, and now the smell is going to get a lot worse. Oh, crikey. <laughs> That's bad. I mean, the good thing about working on the human gut is that you cannot contaminate it. You know, most areas of microbiology will be very careful about sterile conditions, aseptic conditions, as they're called, because you don't want contaminants to get into your research, but it's impossible to contaminate human faeces. Up in Glenn's office, away from the smell, he explained why all these bacteria are so important. Right, so absolutely vital, actually. Um, we, we have 
trillions and trillions of bacteria inside our gut and this makes the organ the most active in the entire body um, and we know for a fact that a lot of these will contribute towards certain diseases but also some of them will protect against diseases and that's really key to the overall interaction in trying to identify who's doing what and how you affect that relationship and the way we tackle it is through diet. So with that in mind, what makes a healthy gut? Are there particular bacteria that we know are better than others? The long-standing ones are bifidobacteria and lactobacilli. These are very widely used as probiotics. So this is the use of live microbes in the diet, which has been in human civilization for thousands of years, but really only scientifically recognized for about the last, say, 100 years, something like that, from the work of someone called Mechnikov, who was a pioneer of probiotic science. Much of the hype about the microbiome today is focused on the diversity of gut bacteria. But Glenn thinks that's a bit of a myth. And what's important is which bacteria a person's got. I think the more important view is to look at the functionality. And you can get a lot of function from the gut microbiome, but low diversity. He says, for example, that a breastfed baby's microbiome is seen as the gold standard. And it's not very diverse at all. They have fewer infections than formula-fed counterparts, fewer atopic issues like asthma and eczema. So I don't think really that elevated diversity necessarily contributes towards improved health. An example off the top of my head, I mean, I I support Sunderland for my sins, um, long-suffering Sunderland supporter. And I'd rather be in a room with 20 Sunderland supporters than 40 Middlesbrough or Newcastle supporters. So diverse, wide diversity isn't always great for everyone. Glenn is also not convinced that we'll ever get to a point where it's possible to personalise dietary advice based on an individual's microbiome. I don't think that is really feasible, but I do think at group levels, you know, that's more realistic. Why don't you think it's feasible to do that? Because it would suggest that every single person has a rather different diet to propel their gut microbiota in in terms of their own health. And I don't think that is necessary. I think, you know, we are much more generic level than that, in that we kind of know which microbes in the gut are positive for health and which ones are negative. And so I don't think that individually there are going to be massive differences in, the, in, in those bugs. The factors that can influence the gut microbiome, to me, are more environmental than genetic. That means principally diet, but also age, stress levels, maybe antimicrobial intake or the pharmaceuticals, these all have an effect upon the gut microbiome. There are lots of commercial tests already available where you can send off a stool sample to find out what gut bacteria you've got. Glenn says that if you want to do this, the most worthwhile thing to then do with your results is to boost the bacteria you've got, which are already positive. That, I think, is a very marked route towards improved health. And it may well be that, you know, ones whichever, whichever you are the positive ones are the same ones in Clint and the same ones in me. So in that case, we would all take the same kind of intervention to help that along. So it wouldn't necessarily be personalised, it would be the, the three of us. There are, of course, many other ways to personalise your diet that don't involve knowing everything about your gut. So personalisation, I think, on a general scale, um, has been shown to be beneficial. This is Julie Lovegrove, who works in the same department as Glenn. She's the Hugh Sinclair Chair in Human Nutrition 
at the University of Reading. We know that there is better, I think, compliance with diet if it's given on a personalised approach. And if we if we think about, for example, dietitians, when we go and see a dietitian, when they look at um, our diet, they then personalise that therapy to that particular person. So they may see that individual's diet and, and see that they aren't having uh, very much oily fish and so therefore particularly emphasise that aspect of the diet. So a lot of the advice we give in a clinical setting is personalised. And I think we find that that is, is better than just giving people's leaflets of, you know, you should reduce your saturated fat, increase your numbers of uh, fruits and vegetables, for example. Julie recently led a large pan-European study called Food for Me, where researchers tried to understand just how effective different types of personalised dietary advice can be. Ahead of the study, each of the nearly 1,300 participants underwent a set of tests, including of their cholesterol level and DNA and they completed a food frequency questionnaire. We had three groups, one with a dietary advice on their diet, one on their diet and their what we call phenotypes, in other words, their characteristics of, of risk. So this could be whether they were at risk of high cholesterol or diabetes. And one on their um, diet phenotype and their genotype, so any variants of those particular genes that may have increased the risk. There were also a control group who got general dietary advice that wasn't personalised. Based on which of these groups they were in, the participants were given advice on a number of occasions over a six-month period and then completed another food frequency questionnaire. And then we assessed how their diet improved. So we were just really looking at behaviour change. Overall, the personalisation had a beneficial effect. So overall, their dietary quality, we call it, improved um, significantly in the personalised groups compared with the control, generalised advice. They also consumed less red and processed meat, less salt uh, and also saturated fats. Those fats on animals are meant to be detrimental to um, particular cardiovascular risk, but they increased a vitamin called folate, which is beneficial for health. But they found that the different type of personalisation didn't really make much difference. So the people who got advice based on their genes or on their particular risk of certain diseases didn't improve their diets more than those who just got advice based on what they usually ate. Maybe the way that we actually presented this to the participants, we gave them quite detailed reports that were up to about six pages, and it may have been that this was just a bit information overload and that perhaps um, they didn't quite understand the risk that was associated with uh, the phenotype or genotype risk. So it may be the way that we actually present this data, and we know that framing it's really important. And that's really interesting because you could say that there's a shift towards trying to give people more information about their bodies and mm. their intake of food, but not everybody is able to deal with that information in the same way, are they? Yeah, I think it is really important. I think we have to understand with our colleagues in psychology, for example, what motivates people to change. And I think we are all motivated by different things. Um, and I think we also must um, frame it in a way that people can not only take it on board, but understand the, the importance of that. So in our studies, we not only tell people the dietary change that we recommend to them, but also try and give a little bit of information about why that's important. And, and that, we found, did motivate people to change more. They understand why we're telling them to reduce butter, uh, because it contains saturated fat, and saturated fat is, for example, linked to cardiovascular risk. There is still a lot that researchers don't know for certain about the way our genes and diets interact. And for Judy... This means that personalising dietary advice based on someone's DNA is so far quite limited. I believe at the moment we're not quite there with giving advice through genes, but there are some genes that we know a little bit more about than others and that dietary change can impact the responsiveness um, according to your genotype. 
Perhaps one example of this is a gene called um, MTHFR, which is involved with metabolism of the um, vitamin folate. So people with a variant of this do not uh, utilise folate effectively and therefore require higher amounts of that than perhaps other people that don't have this variant. In the Food for Me study, the researchers gave people with this genetic variation advice about which types of food to eat more of. We didn't actually go into detail about this is the gene, this is the risk you've got, but we just gave general advice about, you know, your genotype suggests that you are at higher risk from this and, and this is how you should better respond to that. And it's interesting there you said there are some genes that diet can help with because mm. is there an element of saying, oh, well, my, this is my DNA, I can't do anything about it and I will be at risk of X, Y, Z and I can't change anything? Absolutely. So I think when we think about disclosing uh, whether people have this genetic variant, then if you have got the risk variant, then you can be fatalistic and think, well, I've got it. I'm going to die from cardiovascular disease. Why do I just enjoy my life? Why do I, why do I need to, to bother to change my diet? Um, I think if we have evidence that suggests that dietary change is important to reduce that risk, then we should try and motivate people to, to change. In a separate study, Julie looked at another genetic variant for which there is evidence that diet can make a difference to people who have it. We've done studies on a particular gene variant called APOE, and this is associated with increasing cardiovascular risk of up to about two, three-fold higher, but particularly in relation to Alzheimer's disease. It increases your risk quite considerably if you have the variant called APOE4. My particular interest is in cardiovascular disease risk, and there is quite considerable evidence to show that those that have the E4 variant respond very well to lowering of saturated fats in our diet. But this study raised its own particular questions about whether people actually want to know their genotype and the risk associated with it. Some did, some didn't, which was interesting in itself. And those that did, we needed to make sure that they were supported because if they had the genotype that was related to increased of cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's, we needed to ensure that that was delivered in a way that they understood and that they could uh, respond to, but also that they perhaps had the opportunity to go to counselling. For Julie, personalising dietary advice in a way that's useful and accessible to people doesn't all have to depend on genes. We don't only have to genotype. When people think about personalised nutrition, when I talk to my students about it, they usually immediately think of genotyping. However, personalisation can be done on any characteristic, can be done on blood levels of, as I say, your sugars, your glucose, your cholesterol. It could be done actually on your diet. Um, and we do personalise on, on sex. So we give different uh, recommendations to, to women and men, different recommendations to women when they're pregnant, uh, having higher requirements when they're lactating. So personalisation can be done uh, on a number of different characteristics. When I spoke to Tim Spector from King's College London about what he hopes to achieve from his PREDICT study, I asked him how he thinks behaviour might change if more people have personalised dietary advice available via an app on their phones. The short-term goal should be really to make people think more about what they're eating, that when you eat, it causes a metabolic response in the body, it affects your microbes, therefore think sensibly about your choices. Don't just think about calories, fats, sugars, which is marketing nonsense by the big food companies. So that's the first thing that we think we can change uh, soon and people can make choices for their habitual meals. Many people have the identical breakfast, for example, for 10 years. If you can say, well, okay, I'll put my three preferred breakfasts in there and see which is the better one. If you have that, change that breakfast over a few years, you'll notice a benefit with very little pain.
once we get more data about meal timings, we should be able to advise people about whether you're a morning person or an evening person, whether you're better off metabolizing your food early or late. I've tested myself, for example, and I found that actually I metabolize my muffins better in the evenings than in the mornings, hmm. which is contrary to most people. And it's also contrary to all the advice to say we should always load up early in the morning and then have a light uh, meal at night. That data was based on a handful of people 25 years ago uh, who were all young. And it could be also that as you age, you change. Mm. So your circadian rhythms change. We all know that we don't lie in as long as we used to uh, when we were teenagers. So obviously our metabolisms change. And this will reflect that. There is a caveat here, though. And Tim admits that the first people who are likely to sign up to these apps and pay for the tests associated with them are those who are worried about their own health, rather than those who may benefit most from the personalised advice. But that's a problem for all uh, nutritional prevention approaches, so there's nothing unique about what we're trying to do here. You know, it's, it's like you take a top-down or bottom-up approach. The government at the moment takes a bottom-up approach really by saying to food manufacturers of ultra-processed junk food, please try and reduce salt by 1% and uh, sugar by 5% and a few fats by percent, but by all means make it as cheap and plentiful as you like because we're not going to change people's opinion. I personally think that's a bad thing to do. And part of this whole exercise is educating a population. And I think if people see a fun app that you can use that tells you a bit about food and it, you can start getting people interacting with it. You can move beyond those healthy sort of health hackers who would obviously be using it initially to other people you know, who have generally been left behind and got fed up with multiple diets and being misled by the food industry and governments. So, Gemma, are you going to be using your personalised diet app regularly? You know, I have to say, I've mainly been using it to show people like you how it works as a kind of gimmick, rather than standing in the supermarket aisle scanning things or using it every night as I plan my next meal. What about your sister? Yeah, we discussed this the other day and she hasn't been using it much either. So we took part in this study because we were asked to, as twins, not particularly to improve our health, but in the future, if I was really serious about losing some weight or really felt like I needed to improve my gut microbiome, I might use it more often. And, you know, since I went along and got my results, they've actually been slightly updated with a bit more personalization because, you know, this app is still in a very early stage. And, you know, it looks like my microbiome score is a lot worse than I initially thought. Hmm. So I might actually need to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely do it given the opportunity, but at the same time, I'm aware that it's not something that I particularly need to do right now. And there's probably lots of people either living with a particular condition or at risk of developing one who'd probably really benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a wider issue we're going to be touching on in our next episode. Questions about getting personalised healthcare to the people that need it the most. There are still several outstanding issues that we need to address, such as who to invite for screening and how to ensure that we get access to screening to, uh, to the populations with the greatest clinical need who tend to live in some of the disadvantaged communities.
That's it for this second episode of Medicine Made For You, a series from the Conversations Anthill podcast. To make sure you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes, subscribe to The Anthill wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com, along with more articles from academics about the personalisation of healthcare. A big thanks to the team at Predict and King's College London and the University of Reading. And thanks as always to the journalism department at City, University of London, for letting us use their studios. Medicine Made For You is produced and edited by me, Gemma Ware, and Holly Squire, with help from Clint Witchells. If you like The Ant Hill, please give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And if you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or reach us on Twitter at anthillpod. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.